China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Olivia Chung, a research fellow at the China Institute of SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies. Today, we'll be discussing her recent paper, Factional Model Making in China, Party Elites Open Political Contention in the Policy Process, which was recently published by the China Quarterly. Olivia, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start out by asking if you could tell us a bit about your uh, research background and your interest in China. How did it develop? How did it evolve? What was your path to SOAS in this professional career researching China's political system? Well, I think I have always been quite interested in Chinese elite politics, simply because it seems that they are a small group of people who are really influential in a very big country. And I think it is my interest in Chinese elite politics that I uh, made me started researching in China. And that was back in um, 2012 when I first joined the University of Oxford. So I began my postgraduate career back then. And that led on to a PhD at Oxford. And after that, I spent some years teaching Chinese politics at the University of Warwick. And following Warwick, I joined um, SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, as a research fellow, where I'm working on a project on the political thought of Xi Jinping. While at the same time, I'm also doing my own research on how ideology and factionalism actually work together to shape elite politics in the Communist Party. Can I just ask a, a follow-up? You're working on a, a book right now on Xi Jinping thought. Can you just tell us a, a little bit about that project? And I'm curious, as far as I know, that's kind of one of the first big projects taking Xi Jinping thought seriously. Can you just tell us a bit about the origins of that project and any, any um, I know the book isn't quite done yet, but any, um, any of your kind of initial findings or conclusions? Right. So the Xi Jinping Thought Project is a book in progress that I am writing together with Professor Steve Stang of um, the SOAS China Institute. And the idea behind it is really to contextualize what Xi Jinping's political visions are, you know, in the realms of politics, economy, society, foreign policy, and so on. The basic rationale that we are starting from is that we have to take what Xi Jinping says pretty seriously. It is not only propaganda, and it does shape the direction of travel that China would take um, for the time to come. So what we do is basically taking all the speeches and writings that Xi Jinping um, have produced or are being produced in his name pretty seriously. We read all of them and we try to give it a contextualized interpretation based on our knowledge and research of Chinese politics and how those speeches and writings compare to what Xi Jinping has said previously and also what his colleagues have said. And it is on this basis that we are structuring the book to really give what he thinks a structure so that we can have a more solid basis to ascertain China's ambitions. I have to ask, in the book, do you just have you already shortened it to Xi Jinping thought or do you use the full and proper title of Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era? Well, like, we do call it Xi Jinping thought, but you're right. I mean, Xi Jinping thought isn't the long or official form. Um, it has yet been shortened officially, which might indicate, and I think it does, 
that um, there is pushback or resistance against the formalization of Xi Jinping thought as a state ideology of China. Our view is that it is getting there to be a state ideology, but it hasn't reached that status. That's actually um, a question I'm going to ask you at the back end of the conversation. Um, and just to telegraph to listeners, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to Olivia today is, and and fortuitously, the timing of this podcast where we're recording on May 20th, there's been a, a surge in uh, speculation, analysis, rumors that Xi Jinping is facing some pretty significant internal pushback because of many of the, the missteps, which are quite obvious now on economic policy, COVID zero, China's uh, alignment with Russia. So uh, I'm really excited later on in the conversation to ask Olivia how she is assessing what's going on right now. If I may, Olivia, I'd like to turn to the article. And again, folks can find this in the recent edition of the China Quarterly. Can you talk first, before we get into the guts of the article, I'm actually just curious, what was the kind of question or puzzle you were trying to solve when you started the research for this or we started putting pen to paper? So the starting point is really me trying to unpack what Chinese elite politics is really about. I mean, we all know that the Chinese Communist Party is not the most transparent organization in the world. Well, at the same time, I feel like as a research community, there is so much more we can do to understand the Chinese Communist Party more rigorously. So the basic rationale behind my research is to really find out why are there often gaps between theory and reality in Chinese elite politics. So in theory, as we all know, members of the Chinese Communist Party must always be faithful to the party line which is set by the party leadership, and it defines what the party does, what the party wants to do. However, in reality, some of the most major events in Chinese politics are really events where very senior party members openly trample on the party line. Um, some major examples include Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution in the 1960s to 70s, or a much milder example, but also consequential, Ben Xiaoping's self Tour in 1992. So these are examples that really has shaped Chinese politics and China's direction of travel in a very major way. And in these cases, these are party elites who decided that they are going to challenge the party line in public. And I call this open political contention. What I find is that there has been quite a lot of, you know, biographies or historical analysis looking in detail what exactly happened, you know, what did Deng Xiaoping said, what did Mao Zedong do, what did Mao Zedong did in those occasions. However, it left me with a puzzle. Are those occasions really just occasional spontaneous outbursts? Or can we find a pattern that we can contextualize and analyze more systematically? And that led me on to um, a huge piece of research that resulted in the China Quarterly paper. A key component of this paper is this framework you use of a, of a factional of factional model making as a way to describe this, this, as you mentioned, this open political contention amongst Communist Party elites. Can you give listeners a, a, an overview of, of what do you mean? What is this factional model making? And can you give us some examples of how this applies to the political and policy dynamics within the party? At a very basic level, factional model making refers to the process in which um, party elites, i.e. very senior and influential party members, 
carrying out political contention with the central party leadership in public, and in a way that is embedded in the policy process. So it begins with party elites handpicking a local area, which can be a province, a city, a town, or even a village, that implements policies that are marginalized by the party line. And this means that those policies are controversial and are really at the heart of some ongoing ideological or political dispute at the party center. Those party elites then lend their political clout to the local area, so that the local government could assess really generous grants and subsidies from the high ups. The reasoning behind that is to ensure that the local policy, which is controversial in the party, can produce objectively successful policy outcomes that are genuinely enviable. In Chinese political culture, this means that the party elites have cultivated the local area as a model, or in other words, an outstanding example. The party elites would frequently visit that local area themselves in significant, I mean, occasions that are significant, to express support for their controversial policies. And whenever they go, they like to make really long speeches that have very strong ideological undertones, praising the controversial policy in question, often saying that it's actually being true to socialism, while at the same time using it to criticize the party line or the policies that are being implemented in other places of China pursuant to the party line for betraying against socialism. So this is the basics of how factional model making work. Olivia, I should have probably asked alongside that you distinguish or describe describe in the paper the difference between model making and factional model making. Can you just give us some? What is model making as opposed to factional model making? Yeah, thank you for that question. Both are very Chinese terminology that can be quite foreign to observers of Chinese politics who are not, you know, very deeply embedded in China. Um, model making is a method used by the Chinese Communist Party for social control. Um, there is an official system in China since Mao Zedong's time to select individuals or communities that distinguish themselves in following the party's orders. So they are called models. It is a title of political honor, and it comes with even an official certificate. Or other material rewards like housing subsidies or a cash bonus. So model making is really、um, a technique to focus attention to a particular individual or community that does things that the party likes. And the reasoning for upholding that model is to encourage emulation, and through emulation promote conformity to what the party wants. And factional model making is very interesting. Because on the surface of it, it has the form of model making: a local area being quite successful in a policy, and that local area being upheld as a successful example or a model. But in reality, or in substance, it actually subverts model making, because the local area concerned is actually a local area that implement a policy that is deviant from the party line. So, how would we think about a city like Chongqing under Bo Xilai? Is that an example of a factional model making because this this was trying to running policy that wasn't necessarily center approved and was being used for you know Bo's own political career and and objectives? At that time,、um, when Bo Xilai was very involved in cultivating Chongqing according to his political vision, if we do recall. 
um, the Chongqing model was being praised very highly by even central-level mouthpieces. And the narrative of Chongqing at that time was that it is a local policy experiment. In other words, there is nothing you know political, politicized, or controversial about it. It is simply, according to official rhetoric, an ambitious and entrepreneurial local leader trying to trying out new policies to make it work、um, according to local circumstances. And what he tries out might well be generalizable across China. So that was the rhetoric at that time. This was a local policy experimentation. It is bottom up. It is guided by the center. But at the same time, that really wasn't the complete story, because behind what Bo Xilai did at that time was his very strong disagreement about how Hu Jintao was leading the country, and we could see that in the rhetoric on what socialism is,、um, surrounding the whole、um, process of building Chongqing as a model. So Bo Xilai found a bunch of left-leaning China scholars to sing praises for him, and they were often saying things like, "Oh, what Bo Xilai is doing in Chongqing illustrates what socialism 3.0 can mean," as if this is an alternative to what、um, Hu Jintao's policy line is. So if we take it from a discursive level and look at、um, the the people who would come to Chongqing and those who would not, then we can see that there are factional dynamics in the process. And I think one related point I would like to bring out is how、um, we study factionalism or factions in China. It is a very elusive concept,、um, quite simply because officially factions do not exist in Chinese politics. It is officially prohibited. While funny enough, at the same time, the party would admit factions do exist when it comes out in a negative light. So when a senior party cadre is purged, for example, it is not uncommon for of for the official verdict to accuse him of leading a faction to split the party, and we see that line of rhetoric coming out again and again under Xi Jinping, different officials,、um, different tigers who were fallen under his anti-corruption campaign. They were all accused of being, you know. Leaders of a gang or a faction, so it suggests that you know factions do exist, but at the same time, because they cannot function very transparently, for researchers of Chinese politics, it is often quite difficult for us to analyze factions as an organization, as in we cannot really find you know durable structure, rules, who are the members. So I think that is a difficulty of studying factions. And what I try to do in this、um, research paper is to look at faction not so much as an organization, but as a process, i.e., as factionalism, but not as faction as a structure. And factional model making is a process of factionalism, because it is a process of party elites challenging the party line very openly, and hence they are exposing political divisions that are hidden in the party. Can I ask a follow up, Olivia? You write in the paper about there are there were two sort of informal norms that shaped factional model making or or prohibit you know what prohibitions so to speak party elites couldn't use a factional model model making to make a bid for for power or, or, or office. The other was that sort of quoting from the paper, no policies prohibited by the party line could be the subjects of of factional. Uh, model making. Just talking about the one of、um, can't use factional model making to promote your own 
personal career in office or make a play for power. I don't want to linger too much on Chongqing, but I remember at the time there was what is it, the Dan Gao Lun, the cake theory debate that was going on. You had Wang Yang, who was down in, in Guangdong. He was the party secretary and you had Bo Xilai. If I, just to linger on that for a second, how in your model should we think about that? Was that factional model making in the sense that Bo and Wang were uh, making a bid for power and essentially Wang Yang is the only one who won that debate in terms of securing an elevation? Or was that more substantive about a pushing distinct policy agendas because there was essentially f- factional divergences about what sort of economic policies China should be pursuing, a sort of more state-led corporatist model in Chongqing or a sort of more free market model in Guangdong? Or is it both? They were both utilizing their perches in power to try to elevate their own position, but they were also seeing a stark fundamental disagreement on the types of policies that China should promote. I think it is difficult to draw a clear line between policymaking um, versus personal ambition in their particular case. The timing of factional model making in Chongqing and Guangdong at that time would suggest that what they are doing definitely was borderlining using factional model making to bid for a post in the party leadership. And you were right, they do um, exemplify two different ways of shaping China's economy and society. But on top of that, what is quite significant was that Bo Xilai also pursued a very strong agenda of um, personality cult. And this is an element that we didn't see in Guangdong in the case of Wang Yang. So by, you know, cultivating a personality cult around himself at a politically very sensitive season leading up to power transition, it does give a very strong impression that he was using factional model making to bid for a post in the party leadership. While Wang Yang was actually quite careful to steer away from being too personal about factional model making. He actually um, used some quite a lot of Deng Xiaoping's rhetoric, you know, thought emancipation, for example, throughout the whole packaging of the Guangdong model. And he never put his, himself as a person too closely to it. Moreover, one thing that Wang Yang did, which was quite clever, was that he actually started the Guangdong model as something a lot more ambitious and as something a lot more about politics. Initially in 2008, before the global financial crisis, Wang Yang presented the Guangdong model in official rhetoric as a model of political liberalization. And the um, senior intellectuals or influential intellectuals in China that Wang Yang gathered to campaign for the Guangdong model were all saying things about rule of law, constitutionalism, governance, accountability, and so on. But we saw them gradually dropping that line after the global financial crisis of 2008, and after especially the very significant, very large sum of stimulus plan was being announced by the state council. Now, with that package being announced, it was quite clear that the state-owned enterprises would be enlarged, and hence that is not in the direction of political liberalization, which was what Wang Yang was um, championing before the state council stimulus plan was announced. And at that point, there was a very clear shift in official rhetoric in Guangdong on what the Guangdong model was about. No longer 
was Wang Yang or the people rallying for him talking about political liberalization. They completely dropped that language, and instead they are now talking about how can the party rule more effectively in society. So in a sense, you can see that Wang Yang was a lot more careful than Bo Xilai. He doesn't want to look like he is championing for a policy that the party line has expressly said no. And I think that really shows that the political dynamics in Chongqing and Guangdong are not entirely the same. And Bo Xilai was、um, far more ambitious and in a much more open way. Staying on case studies, you. Focus a good chunk of the article looking at Nanjie, which is a a small, very interesting village in Hunan. I only came across Nanjie because for a decade or so, every few years, some journalist will discover it because it ha- it's the sort of the land that you know capitalist modernity forgot. It's this almost kind of Maoist theme park, and I know when I was doing stuff on neo Maoists, they would always. Take study tours or do red tourism trips to Nanjie. First, before we get into some of your findings, can you just give a description of, of Nanjie, some of the historical origins, and then a little bit behind how it was able to keep its identity as a sort of Maoist collectivist village amidst a, a modernizing, marketizing China. Nanjie is a village in central China, Henan Province. In 1984,、um, Nanjie did something quite controversial. Well, at that time,、um, no one really knew about it. So what it did was that it recollectivized agricultural、uh, management rights in China. The background to that was, in just two years ago, back in 1982, there was a policy in the party center for decollectivization. So Maoist People's Communes. Were being dissolved, and all agricultural land were then being decollectivized in the sense that individual farmer families can manage the land on their own, and that that was the party policy since 1982. And Nanjie followed that party policy; it implemented decollectivization. But in 1984, the Nanjie Party Committee decided to recollectivize. Notwithstanding the fact that this was against the party line, and the reason why Nanjie did that in 1984 was quite simply because the collectivization did not work well in Nanjie. Agricultural productivity became really low, and there were a lot of tension between、um, local residents and the local party committee. And it was in that context the local party committee said, "You know, we should just recollectivize, although the rest of China wasn't doing it." And however, that decision was in itself not very popular in Nanjie, so recollectivization was very much the decision of the local party committee that did not have local consensus. It took Nanjie a long time, quite a few years, before it could complete the process of recollectivization in 1990. And in order to push recollectivization, Nanjie also turned very ideological. So the local party committee were promoting a、uh, Maoist songs, or reading Mao's works, and various kind of ideological campaigns to promote a collective spirit, and with that to push for recollectivization. So now, can you sort of extend this into your your the framework that you use of factional model making, and just tell us what is the experience of Nanjie 
tell us about contestation in China's political system? Right. So as I said earlier, Nanjie started to recollectivize in 1980s, but it didn't really gain any attention until after the Tiananmen Square protests and crackdown in 1989. It was in that context where there were some left-leaning or conservative party elites that really wanted to find a village that they think look like they are really um, committed to socialism, you know, hardline socialism. And they found Nanjie um, to be a really useful example because it recollectivized, which looked really Maoist, statist, collectivist on its own accord. So in early 1990, Nanjie received its first high-ranking patron, who was a very senior party member, Qiao Shi, at that time. And he praised Nanjie for disciplining the masses with Mao Zedong thought. So a very, you know, leftist um, rhetoric that he used to endorse the Nanjie model. And with Qiao Shi supporting Nanjie, Nanjie managed to receive a lot of concessional loans and grants from the central government and central bank. And it was on that basis that Nanjie completed recollectivization, turned from agricultural production to much more industrialization. Um, expanded its factories to up to, I think, 27 factories and became very rich. And so objectively then, Nanjie became very successful economically and quite enviable by villages nearby. And some nearby Henan villages emulated Nanjie's example. They also recollectivized and then they also tried to seek for, you know, financial support from the higher ups and they had some success in doing it. So we can see that factional model making had become a local economy on its own in Nanjie and in its vicinity. And that is from a local level on how factional model making work. And on an upper level, the question would be, why did party elites back Nanjie? In the case of Qiao Shi, Nanjie's first patron in the early 1990s, after the Tiananmen crackdown, um, he really backed Nanjie to show that he really believed in left-leaning ideas. And it was a show or a signal of power in the face of Deng Xiaoping's reformist faction. And at that time, after the Tiananmen Square um, crisis, there was a very serious debate within the party as to whether there is any risk of, you know, urban political unrest spreading to rural areas. And the idea behind is if rural areas are recollectivized, if they have a much more centralized way of governance, that might be a safer bet to prevent political ideas that are liberal from spreading to rural areas. So in that context, there were some discussion at the very higher, very upper level of the Communist Party of recollectivization, or put it differently, going back to a much more Maoist way of like rural governance. And Xiao Shi, by going to Nanjie, when that discussion was ongoing in the party, was clearly taking a stance when the party didn't want the discussion to be that public. So it was a very political move. And after Xiao Shi, we saw military generals and officers, the descendants and loyalists of Mao, and even party princelings, or put differently, the descendants of the party's founding generations, um, folks who are in their 50s to 70s, going to Nanjie to say various things they want to say, and in doing so, really put forward their desired political image that they want to be recognized within the regime. 
I mean, we could talk about Nanji a lot. It's such a fascinating place, but I'm, I'm cognizant of time here. So I, I wonder if I can move forward a bit in time and actually ask, do you see any new Nanjias in Xi Jinping's China? I mean, do you see any examples of localities or cities or villages that are being used for factional model making that are unique or have emerged under the Xi Jinping period? Nanjie is a factional model. And under Xi Jinping, factionalism is being severely suppressed and disciplined. So although we do see local models emerging under Xi Jinping, they are not factional models, but party models. Or put differently, local areas that um, distinguish themselves in implementing Xi Jinping's party line. So some examples of party models would include the Zhejiang model for common prosperity or the Beijing Tianjin Hebei model of Xi Jinping's development ethos. So those are party models and not factional models, and there are plenty of them. And in fact, Nanjie itself has also changed its own framing on what it stands for. Previously, Nanjie's local leaders would say that Nanjie stands for you know, socialism and Mao Zedong thought. And now their leaders say Nanjie is really a base for um, party education and anti-poverty. And Nanjie is implementing Xi Jinping thought. So you can see that the rhetoric has shifted to suggest that Nanjie is no longer a factional model, but it's a model loyal to Xi. I don't say this. Uh, is COVID and the implementation of COVID policies an area where we could see factional model making over the next year or so as sort of frustration grows with the very conservative approach coming from the center? Would that fit in your model if we were starting to see, I don't know where it would be, but just some locality that is starting to, let's say, ease up in ways that seem out of sync or tighten down that is out of sync with, with central guidance? I think it is very tempting for some local areas to do it, especially if there is local backing and they think it could work. But I don't see them doing it very openly and using it as a means for, you know, open political contestation. I don't see them, you know, developing a whole discourse around it. But like to put in a bigger framework, we also have to appreciate the fact that the anti-corruption campaign in China remains ongoing and remains intense. And Xi Jinping's definition of corruption is not a legal definition. Corruption ultimately means political disloyalty. And political disloyalty refers to um, not implementing Xi Jinping's policy. Now, the issue we really have is that zero COVID policy is Xi Jinping's policy. It is being very clearly associated as such. And Xi Jinping is still using a mechanism called um, central inspection or upper level inspection, where inspectors are sent to lower levels, often unannounced to inspect local policy implementation. And if the local areas are not implementing Xi Jinping's policies faithfully, then they would be charged for disloyalty, which is you know, the worst form of corruption you can ever be charged with. So the use of central inspection team is something that is ongoing. And I can see that being um, used even more, given that there is a strong temptation for local areas to be creative about zero COVID. Final question, which is um, about Xi Jinping's position in power. Again, as of recording in May 20th, 
just over the past week or so, but actually over the past, I'd say, couple months, there's been another round of media speculation, rumors that China's economic growth headwinds, frustration with China's COVID policy, the February 4th joint statement between Russia and China, but more importantly, Beijing's continued alignment with Russia is starting to lead to some very aggravated frustration within the party. And because this is a party Congress year, that there is actually really mounting pressure for um, for Xi Jinping's head. Just over the past week, there's been some speculation that uh, the premier Li Keqiang is, you know, making some progress in closing the, the power gap between him and, and Xi Jinping. I I have my own thoughts on this, but I, I want to just take advantage of having you on the podcast. How do you think about all this? How do you assess this in, I think, in the context of this is not a new phenomenon. Every year there's a round of rumors about Xi Jinping. They oftentimes coincide with flagging economic growth. So we've, we've definitely heard this before, but we also shouldn't always dismiss, you know, emergent signs of intra-party contestation. So as an expert on this, what do you make of all this? I would perhaps bring in Xi Jinping thought as a perspective that we can use to look into all these. So Xi Jinping thought is officially Xi Jinping's political ideas. That is in the process of being codified as the party's new ideology. It hasn't yet reached ideological status, but it is getting there. And its status reached another level back in November 2021 with the party's third historical resolution. That historical resolution is very significant. In that, it didn't resolve anything. It's not really about history. The whole resolution is about praising Xi Jinping and his political vision as being correct and supreme in China. So I think if the party has to back away from Xi Jinping's thought, that would be very difficult. It would basically be a very obvious act of self-denial of what the party had been doing in the past many years. And the, f- the importance about Xi Jinping thought is also that it's not only Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping thought could potentially live on even if Xi Jinping is no longer around to lead the country for whatever reason. Xi Jinping thought would be a legacy that he would use to bind the party to his political vision and for which departure can be politically very costly. And I think we also have to appreciate the wider context of how there is always dilemma and um, coordination difficulties if um, party elites are to mount kind of like um, a revolt over Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping has tightened the political structure such that the coordination dilemma are really um, being intensified. Um, Say, for example, if we look at the composition of top party political organs, a Politburo, Politburo Standing Committee, or even the Central Committee, we can no longer box, you know, party elites clearly into various factions looking at their biography. And in that context, um, we can't really say for sure who would have an ambition to overthrow Xi Jinping and who may not, or who might be people who are two-faced, so as to say. So when when you have a situation where um, factions cannot really coordinate realistically, and you have a very strong anti-corruption campaign still ongoing, dissatisfaction can be there, but whether they can be acted on and coordinated into significant political outcome would be an entirely different matter. I think what is quite significant 
for politics under Xi Jinping is how he has、um, demobilized factionalism to an extent where things that we think can happen if it is not Xi Jinping. So if it is Hu Jintao making these policy errors, I think、um, analysts and pundits would be a lot more confident that、um, he would not be able to stay on. But with Xi Jinping, it is an entirely different story. Yeah, great. That, that it was a really, I think that was a really excellent analysis, and always worth zooming out and considering the wider context rather than just you know following what was published on page two of People's Daily yesterday and, and extrapolating out from that. Olivia, I really want to thank you for your time today. This is a great conversation, and、uh, again, for listeners, the paper is "Factional Model Making in China: Party Elites' Open Political Contention." In the policy process that is recently published in the China Quarterly. So, Olivia, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate your research, and I'm really looking forward to the book that you and Steve are writing on Xi Jinping thought. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power. The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org/podcasts to see our full catalog.